Amen. Now, on the order of service, you'll see 2 Kings 6, verse 8 to 33. Uh, we've neglected to put uh, chapter 6, verse 1 to 7 on there, which is about the, the floating axe. So I'm about to read a story, and perhaps you've heard this one before, Jonah, but it's a strange story. I remember being your age and thinking, what on earth just happened? I don't know what that is all about. So listen to this. He says there in, one, uh, in 2 Kings 6, Now the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, See the place where we, de- we, where we dwell under your charge. It's too small for us. Uh, let's go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell in. And he said, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I'll go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. We'll carry on in a moment. Let me just give a bit of an introduction now. So that picture that we've just seen there, it's a picture with lots of questions. And the question about the floating axe will only be resolved towards the end. So I'm going to have to keep you awake until the end. In fact, I brought an axe with that I will put in the water and make it float in front of your very eyes. If that'll help to keep you awake until the end. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. Point it wherever you like. In fact, if, if all of us sat in front of it, it'll be, it'll be great. You can also move it around as the service goes on to give respite from moment to moment. You are now missing it completely. Move back, move back. It's fun to sit this close, but not that, that much fun. Chris, just take it out and plug it in over there now. So that it <laughs> okay, so the floating axe. Um, it's a picture. And we need to think of the world, and we do it already, in terms of pictures. And I don't wear glasses, although I think I need glasses. Uh, once you've put glasses on, you're, you're really just putting a picture in front of your eyes. It's a picture uh, that is clear. You see right through it. A bit like if I pick up the glass of wine and I look through the red wine, everything becomes red. The the picture of the wine colors everything. And all of us have pictures with which we look at the world. All of us have lenses with which we look at the world. And today I want to say to you, I want you to put on the lens of the floating axe head. It's a bit impractical, I, I suppose. But I want you to put the picture of the floating axe head on as glasses. And you need to look at the world through the lens of the floating axe head. You think, Krug, you're not making anything clearer. It's becoming harder and harder the longer you talk. Uh, And I hope it will become clearer in a moment. Anything else, any other way of looking at the world, if we don't use the floating axe head to look at the world, we won't make sense of the world. In fact, we'll add more to the troubles in the world than alleviate it. So what is the story of the floating axe head? It is the story of resurrection. Hmm? Would you agree with me? I think last week we spoke about Naaman. Naaman was the man who was covered in leprosy and he went into the water, the Jordan incidentally, with leprosy. Uh, he, was, he was symbolically and ritually unclean. In many ways he was dead for communion with God. Remember, he couldn't even come into Elisha's presence. He had to stand at the door. 
And then after he's gone into the water, he comes out and he comes and stands in front of Elijah. He's clean. He was dead, but now he's alive. In the same way, the axe head is a picture of something that is dead at the bottom of the ocean, bottom of the Jordan. And then it has to be brought up in order to be alive. A practical question would be, what can an axe head do to get out of the water? What is it able to do? An axe head, what can it do to get out of the water? It can contribute nothing to itself coming out of the water. And, and that's the picture that God wants to give to us here, is, is that for the axe head to float, something has to happen to it. Something has to happen to it. All right. So we're now going to turn our attention. We know this is the lens. The lens is I need to put the floating axe head on. The floating axe head is a story of resurrection. Something goes into the water. Someone has to lift it up. Uh, and then the whole book of Kings is about this. It is about faith in the God that can resurrect the dead. That's what the whole book is about. The whole book is about you are dead, Israel, but God can make you alive. But Israel don't get it. They don't get it. They have to, God pounds it into their heads with pictures and with experiences and with wars and with famines and with exile. But they don't get it. And, and so let us not miss it today. The, the story of one and two kings is the story of resurrection. And the invitation is come and put your faith in the God that raises the dead. In other words, come and put your faith in the God that raises axe heads. That's at the bottom of the Jordan. Okay, we'll get back to that. Now, let's read the rest of the story, because this will show the various ways that we try and deal with our deaths, with death, with our greatest enemy. We don't want to put our faith in the God that resurrects the, death, the dead. No, we put our faith in other things. And putting your faith in other things in the Bible is called blindness. It's called blindness. And you will now see five groups of blind people in the passage we're going to read. See if you can find them. It's a trick question. The last one is you. Four. You'll see four. Who's blind? Let's start. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware, you do not pass this place, or the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. So what's happening? Someone is warning the king, the king of Syria, uh, before, uh, before he moves somewhere, where he's going to be. So he asks in verse 11, And the mind of the king of Syria is greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and he said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? So he's looking for a mole. And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of, the, uh, the, uh, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. <laughs> and he said, oh, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he's in Dothan. And so he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, Please open his eyes that he may see. 
So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with Elisha's prayer. And Elisha said to them, oh, This is not the way to the city. Follow me. I'll bring you to the man who you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O oh Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. We're going to stop there today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So that's the Bible's way of saying, and they lived happily ever after. Did you hear that at the end? It says, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. And so this is a great story, a story of a triumph. And if we want to be wise in the world that we live in, the world that is often torn uh, alongside lines either of, uh, of, of nations or of races or of haves versus have-nots or versus, versus certain tribes or groups or clubs, if we want to bridge the gap and, and, and make the same statement about our world to say that never again does such and such come into our land on raids, then we need to learn from Scripture. What we need to learn from Scripture is how to see. And what I said earlier, if you can see, you're not blind, but because when you're blind, you are, you are doing works of death. You're, you're serving idols, and it's a, it's a death work. It's a death work which, uh, which is against the God of resurrection. The whole story is about resurrection. To put your faith in the God of resurrection, you have to be able to see and once you're able to see, then you can start to be a real blessing to the world that we live in. Then you can be able to hear those words, and such and such did not come into the land on raids anymore. Okay, so seeing is at the heart of this. Resurrection is what it's all about. Now let's go and find the first people who can't see. The first people who can't see is the king of Syria. What is it that he can't see? He can't see who the mole is. He believes there's a mole in his army. Whenever he goes to attack Israel, before he gets there, the Israelites already know where he is. And so he thinks, look, there's someone who is, is telling them what's going on. And so he's looking to find this person. And, and you'll see the operative word there is in verse 13. This is this king of Syria. And he said to his soldiers, Go and see where he is. So the king of Syria can't see. He realizes the only way out is if he finds the man who can see, finds him, and what, do you, what does he want to do then? That I may send and seize him. I'm pretty sure he's not going to send to have a tea party with him. He's sending to seize him in order to kill him. Uh, he can't see who's telling the Israelite king where they're going to stay, and so he wants to seize the man. He wants to go see the man who can see and kill him. So the first blind man in the story is the king of Syria. And life and death are at stake. 
This is someone who can't see, and because he can't see, he will lose his battle. His people will die. Life and death is at stake because he can't see. And so what does he do? With his limited sight, he does something that we might be tempted to do as well, and he relies on his own strength. He says, okay, I can't see who is seeing, but now I've heard it's Elisha. I'm going to send and seize him and kill him. And he relies on his own strength. See, the thing that makes the difference for him between life and death is not spiritual sight, but the thing that makes the difference between life and death for him is his own strength. He sends an army. And there's immediately an, uh, an application for us. How do you respond to overwhelming circumstances? What is it that you rely on the moment when your circumstances become overwhelming? In fact, life and death are perhaps at stake. Do you rely on your strength? Do you rely on your strength, on your military might, on your ability to fight for yourself? Now, of course, language of violence is in view as we start to talk about it, and it's worth mentioning that. That in domestic abuse, that is what happens. Someone's overwhelmed by their circumstances, and the way that they try and cope with their circumstances is through strength. And so they use their strength to push it down on other people. Now, this passage will show to us this is not the way you get a happy, a happy ending. That's actually where you get a very sad ending. Domestic violence. But this domestic violence takes the words not just of hands, but of words. Words that can often be said in anger. Your military might might be your harsh tone that you use as you speak to your family members, to your wife, to your husband, to your colleagues, to your housemates. You might rely on your strength, your, 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 your verbal strength, in order to subdue people. When you're threatened, that is what you do. That is what you rely on. Well... You're blind, is what the Bible will say, and you're like the king of Syria in doing that. So what is the way forward? Well, the story continues. The story continues to talk to us about the second group of blind people. And the second group of blind people are just one person, and it is the servant. It is Elisha's servant. He comes out of his room. He sees all these chariots that's now surrounding uh, where they live. And that's what he can see. He's threatened. He's overwhelmed. It's life and death that's at stake. And how would he respond to his life being threatened? What is it that he will rely on? Look at what Elisha says to him. Well, his prayer is in verse 17, 16. He said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Do not be afraid. What he relied on was his fear. How will he get out of this difficult situation? His fear either may pacify him or in some of our cases fear actually motivates us but but the one emotion that he showed was fear will he run uh, will he hide what, what will he do when emotion the emotion of fear takes hold of him in this difficult situation and you need to ask yourself is that perhaps a way that you're tempted to respond when you're being threatened when when things get difficult for you now elisha shows us how to get sight. Elisha shows us that what needs to be seen in the midst of threatening and overwhelming circumstances is a spiritual reality. And it's very interesting. He prays, he prays to God, please open the eyes of my servant so that he may see. He realizes, Elisha, that fear is not the best way to respond to a situation, overwhelming situation. And he prays that God would open his eyes so that he can see spiritually. So here we are beginning to see the right strategy already. This is the strategy with which Elisha lives. It is seeing his circumstances with spiritual sight. 
be. He is not allowing either his strength or his conceived idea of strength or his fear to govern what he does. Is he? No, no, no. He wants to see things spiritually. And the only reason he prays, that's remarkable, the only reason he prays that he might see is so that the fear would go away of his, of his servant. He's not praying that God would strike down this chariot, this ring of chariots. No, his only prayer is, Lord, let him see. Teach him how to live with sight. Teach him how to live the way that leads to life. Teach him. Show him. It's the only reason he prays that. Because what he prays for next is, Lord, strike, and this is the third group, the Syrians with blindness. Again, we're dealing with sight. Strike them with blindness. And so that's what his prayer is. He prays this prayer and they are struck with blindness. Uh, and now we see... Uh, a fourth reason how people are led. Is it the fourth one? No, it's the third one. We had the strength, we had the fear, and now we have the, the desires. Look at what he does. So they are blinded, and uh, Elisha says to them, this is not the way, and that's not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. You see, our desires, what we want, can lead us down the garden path. We've got to be very careful of our desires, the things that we seek. Because in this instance, these men are blind. And the only thing that makes them follow Elisha is because they seek something. There's something they want. They want Elisha. And this man is apparently going to lead them to. So their eyes are closed and they're just following him. And if you stop them halfway and say, why are you following him? They say, because he's taking me to where I want to be. My wants, my desires are now my guide. And when I'm in a difficult situation, when life feels overwhelming and overbearing, I don't revert to my strength and I shout people away, or I rely on my strength to make things happen. I don't go into fear, cowering and hiding under my table or under my bed. Uh, no, no, no. What I do is, I, what do I want? What do I want? I want this and I want that. And I'm starting to follow my desires out of a confusing situation. Can it be that a big part of our way of living today as Canada Water Church is actually governed by our desires? All the church planting and church growth books that I've read is all about making church as comfortable as possible because then people will come. Why will they come? Because then they'll want to come. What you'll do is you'll secretly plug in on their desires and you'll draw them through their desires closer to God. It works. But on a day like this, it doesn't work. It's too warm in this room. You know, if only we had air conditioning, this room would have been filling up with people. Uh, no, he's teaching us that desires, using desires as your guide in life, is also a form of blindness. And it's a form of blindness because the whole Syrian army ends in a trap. They end up in the middle of Samaria and they're surrounded by the Israelites. Now, I know it's not a, it's not a violent trap that they ended up in. They very nearly were. They're, they're in a love trap. They're in a grace trap. They, they're trapped in order to be given incredible generosity, shown incredible generosity by the Israelites. But nonetheless, they followed Elisha because he led them around by their desires. In what way can you, can you be guarding against this form of blindness in your life? Trusting your power? Responding to your fear? Um, uh, letting, uh, being led by, uh, by your, your desires. Or fourthly, the fourth group of people that are blind in this situation is the Israelite king. And in what way do you think he might be blind? Well, it's that repetition. 
So the army is in the middle of Samaria. All of his soldiers are probably on the, houses, uh, on the roofs of houses around this army. They're ready, poised to shoot. And, uh, and he turns to Elisha and he says, uh, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? A repetition there. Shall I strike? I've never, I don't like fishing for a start. And I also don't like shooting. But apparently there's an expression that sounds like this. Shooting fish in a barrel. I've never heard that expression used widely, but I can imagine the scene where the fish are captive in a barrel and someone points a gun into them and just shoots the fish in the barrel. There's no skill involved in it and it's just, it's just unsavory. It's an awful thing to do, in my view. But, but this is what this man wants to do. He is so greedy, the Israelite king, that what he responds to in that situation is, shall I shoot the fish in the barrel? Shall I just strike them down? Shall, is this what I shall do? And, and we've got to be so careful because the thing that he does when he is in his situation is he responds to his greed. He responds to his desire to want more and more and more. And it's, made, it's been made so easy by all of this. And Elisha says no. In fact, Elisha will come up with a plan that is both creative and compassionate. And if you want to be a force for good in, in London, if you want to be a force for good in, in our country and around the world, you want to solve problems with creativity and with compassion. And uh, I now want to briefly talk to you about uh, something that might not have escaped your notice, and that is that uh, there's been great looting taking place in South Africa. South Africa for a long time has been a tinderbox that was ready to be lit, lit up, with, uh, with Rachel Strife, good morning, with Rachel Strife and difficulty. And, um, and what's happened with, uh, with the looting is it, it literally just, it was just lit up. And so this past week, um, we have seen people responding to the crisis of widespread looting in South Africa and the economic crisis there in all four of these ways. We've seen people trying to meet their fear with force. People standing on the road with guns and ready to shoot. We've seen people hiding in their houses and pulling the shutters down and, and, and crawling in underneath their beds. Well, at least I have seen. These are my friends. This is where my accent is from. I'm from that country. This is my story. And so I read this and I see how people are in many ways blind to the spiritual truth that Second Kings 6 teaches. And I've seen, I've seen people that were led by their desires. Leaders took charge of them and said, you want this, you want that, you just go and get it. And they just they pushed people to go and go and get things. It's That beeping sound is not, out, not us. So it will hopefully stop. Sorry. And so we've seen that, and we've also seen people being led by greed. By greed. Greed, perhaps not in the looting we saw in the last week, but greed in the looting that we've seen over the many years of Western society around the world, where greed has become, for many of us, an economic system, where to have more and to accrue more is a good thing. And we've set that example to the whole world around us. And so are we surprised when people that don't have then just finally say, but I also want. And they respond in greed, in the same way that the Israelite king was. The fish are in the barrel and he just shoots. You see, these are complex matters, and if any of those four approaches are followed, it is the blind leading the blind. It is compounding the problems. But where is the creative compassion, and where will it come from? Now, you know the solution that Elisha comes up with the situation. You saw it, right? 
He says to, he says to the king of Syria, no, 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 no. Don't shoot them. Do the exact opposite. Feast with them. Isn't that exactly what Jesus taught? Said, love your enemy. Give them a cup of water. Turn the other cheek. Love them. He loves. Elisha forces the king of Israel to love the assaulting army by putting on a feast for them. This is how the happy ending comes. It's because of his creative compassion. Now I'm going to tell you two stories. That's true stories that happened this past week. One is creative and the other one is a combination of creative compassion. And the one I, I, I say reluctantly, but it is very real in South Africa. So looting took place. It was incredible. People's livelihoods, uh, rich and poor, were demolished. The friends of ours, and as a church, we have given to a church there. Uh, the deacons have decided to give uh, to a church that will now support people who have lost their livelihoods to enable them to buy basic necessities. We're, we're putting, as a church, we're putting petrol in cars that's going to nearby towns to go and buy milk and medicine and bread to bring to these people who now have nothing because the shops that sold them have been burnt out. And so one uh, quick-thinking store manager, so a grocery store, he, uh, he saw what was beginning to happen and that they were, the crowds were just over, were flowing over. And he very quickly asked his staff, I'm sure people were praying, they are praying now for sure, it's incredible, to, uh, to take sunflower oil and run out with sunflower oil and put it on the floor in front of the entrance to this, this, this shopping center. And so it's literally that bit when you go into Tesco, you, you go through the, the big doors and you're walking towards to get into the shop. That whole bit there, they would just put sunflower oil all over the place. It's a creative plan. And of course, when uh, the first group of people came in, they think we're going to break down this door and start stealing whatever is in there. They start sliding around. And the next group comes riding and they slide and they slide. And soon people realize, hang on, hang on, hang on. People are putting up a bit of a resistance here. And it's a very creative plan. They were not looted at all. People left and, and that was, was a creative plan. But it lacked compassion. Of course it lacked compassion. Uh, because people were falling over. Uh, and people were getting hurt. And, and it, it lacked compassion. And so uh, I was struck by this one creative, compassionate idea that came out of a group called the Better Enders. They want to end the better story for South Africa. And, um, and it's a white Afrikaans man that speaks to the camera and he says, our country is burning at the moment. Our country is burning. And is it not at this time of the flames that we need to come up with a different plan? And what he suggested is that every person who speaks Afrikaans who's listening to this uh, video that he's recording Take 250 rands, about 12 pounds, and commit to give that per month for the next year to one Zulu man or one Zulu woman. Now, a bit of history in South Africa, these riots all took place quite confined in KwaZulu-Natal, where one of the biggest tribes in South Africa are the Zulu tribe. And so it's mixed in with poverty, with tribalism, with inequality, with uh, greed. Uh, it, it, this is a very complex, so I don't want to even touch too much of it, but... What this white Afrikaans man was saying is, why don't you give in a, in a very, uh, uh, very honorable way to someone 250 rand a month so that they begin to teach you to speak Zulu? And he said, so next time when you're looking to find out what a Zulu word means, now we all go to our smartphones, we just type it in and it gets translated. He says, no, 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 what you'll do now, you've bought data for a Zulu man or woman 
who doesn't have data and therefore doesn't have the ability to learn. Lots of the schools have gone online and one of the things that's holding people back is that they can't access data in order to watch the classes. And so you give them 250 Rand, their phone rings and here you are. Hello Tabu, this is John speaking. Can you please tell me what is the Zulu word for dog? Ah, good morning John, it's good to hear from you. The Zulu word for dog is Nyala, Nyala. Okay, okay, so how can I say to my neighbor, I want to buy his dog? And he then teaches him the phrase. Okay, and a day or two later, you call him back and say, listen, Tavu, I've now spoken to my neighbor. Can you ask me, how do I ask him, what does this dog need to eat? I need to feed this dog. And he teaches him the phrase. And over time, what's happening is that it's a creative, compassionate solution to bring two people that are made in the image of God together so that they're somehow connected and what will happen next time when there's looting taking place, where someone is trying to, to push people apart by, by, by finding the little places where there's a difference and, and putting a wedge in there and trying to pry it apart? What happens next time? Tabu and John says, not us. I know Tabu. I know where he lives. In fact, I can see their village is suffering, or they can see where I am and where I'm suffering. We don't want to break each other's things. A creative, compassionate solution can only come about can only come about if we can see the floating axe head. So Kruger, hang on, what are you talking I forgot about the floating axe head. What are you talking about? Let's just talk about that for a moment. Creative compassion in London, creative compassion to the needs, the, the multitude of needs around us. Well, the one thing that stops us all in our tracks is, well, that won't make a difference. Oh, that won't work. Well, that won't... We don't have enough people to do that. How will we ever get that off the ground? But, but the God of one kings is the God of resurrection. And the picture for resurrection is the heavy iron axe head that lies at the bottom of the ocean, at the bottom of the Jordan River. No one can lift this up. This cannot lift itself up. It has to be, it has to be lifted up by someone from outside. The answer to the problem of the floating axe head is incidentally a relational problem. Did you notice? It's a borrowed axe head. It's a borrowed axe. And so what will happen to this poor man? He borrowed the axe in the first instance because he doesn't have an axe. It means he's poor. Now the axe is gone, and in Exodus 22 it says, if you've borrowed something from someone, you've lost it, you've got to pay it back. He didn't have the money at the beginning. He's lost the axe head. How can he pay it back now that he's not yet taken one log off the, out of the forest? He's got no money. So what will he have to do? He'll have to sell himself into slavery. He'll have to be indebted to this man who gave him the axe. And he'll have to say, I'll be your slave. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And, and the prophet Elisha looks at this. And for him, this is the gospel. Jesus came to set the captives free. And so he looks at the situation and he intervenes. He intervenes. He raises the axe head. Now, I would love for us as a church to walk around with glasses with the floating axe head on. And what do I mean with that? I want for us to, to walk with glasses and say, we believe the God of resurrection. No situation is beyond Him. No situation is beyond the God of resurrection and new life. God can change even the worst circumstances through His creative compassion into, into a success, into a happy, happy ending. And He's done that already for all of us that put our faith in him and i'm beginning to close 
What makes a difference? What causes the axe head to float? Did you notice this in the text? Beautiful. Beautiful. Then the man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. He cut off a stick. Cut off a stick. And he threw it in. And it made the iron float. Cut off a stick. Where else have you heard about a stick? Now a stick, if I'm not mistaken, is part of a tree. And a tree, if I'm not mistaken, is what was used to make the cross on which we, Jesus was hung. And because of this, the Apostle Paul can then say in 1 Corinthians 1, I long to preach nothing other than the cross of Christ to you. You see, the difference was made because Elisha threw something into the water. He did that earlier, by the way, as well. He threw some salt into the pot, I think. Oh, no, he threw some salt into the water that were making people ill. And he threw something else into the pot that had death into Something had to come into it from outside. And when Jesus comes, it is God that puts his son into our Jordan. And that's where he was baptized. It's, our, it's, it's God's son that goes into our Jordan. At the bottom of the, of the Jordan lies the axe head. At the bottom of of death lies all of us. Ephesians 2 would say we are dead in our sin and trespasses. But because of the grace of God, the stick is thrown in. The cross is thrown in. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, says Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, 1. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, the floating axe is a picture of the cross that God threw in His Son into our death in order to raise us to life. The cross is the power of God. The stick is the power of God. And therefore Paul would say, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What sort of creative, compassionate solutions would it lead to if we started looking at the problems in the world like Elisha did? As opportunities to show the compassion of God. As opportunities to show that God can, can come up with a solution that we've never thought of. And it's nothing as hurtful as sunflowers, sunflower oil on a slippery floor. Uh, and it's not even just a table set with some good food and drink for our enemies. No, it is Him taking the debt for our sin upon Himself. Drinking God's wrath up to the very last drop. That's what Jesus did as He said it is finished. He dealt, God dealt with our sin. And when he was raised to new life, he said, we too can be raised in him. So in many ways, the sermon should start there. But you are the rest of the sermon as you go out into the world to go face your problems, your threats and your fears. How will you look at your problems through the floating axe, through the cross of Christ, the crucified Christ? How will you look at them? How will this serve to dismantle your Big ideas about your military strength. Oh, I will fight my way out of this. No, no, no. Cross your way out of it. Oh, I will fret my way out of this. No, no, no. Cross your way out of this. Oh, I will, I, I will want my way out of this. No, no, no. Cross your way out of this. Oh, I will greed my way. I will accumulate my way out of this. Cross yourself out of this. What does it mean? It means let's, let's go to our circumstances ready to see God 
God's new way, not of up, but of down first. Not of being served, but of serving. Let us go and follow Jesus, the one who's gone ahead of us, so that our ultimate enemy, which is death, will, uh, will finally be trampled underfoot. Let me uh, pray for us as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this startling picture. It feels like it's an unnecessary miracle. Someone's axe is lost and you give it back. But actually, in all of that, you're saying you're a God that cares about relationships. You care about property rights. And you know that small flames lead to huge fires. And here you came to intervene. And you came to intervene by giving spiritual sight. And this spiritual sight is equal to life. Father, we pray that we all, as we've listened to your word now, will see the cross of Christ as the power of God. We will see that as your son took on human flesh, that was the decisive moment that took place in human history. From that moment on, everything changed. And that Christ, as you died on that cross, the veil was torn. The the thing that separated us from you, the enmity between us and you, came to an end. And there, with your resurrection, is the proof that there is now life, that death is no longer our enemy. And so we ask that not only will we be able to solve the problems of this world creatively and compassionately, but we will do it singularly focused on the cross of Christ. So we pray for our brothers and sisters this morning, those that are in communities that have taken part uh, of the looting, that today feel particularly guilty, uh, when they see the things that they've stolen and, uh, and their shame and guilt is pinning them down, we pray, Father, that the gospel of forgiveness uh, and of restitution would be like a balm to their souls. And we pray that there'll be many gospel preachers, men and women and boys and girls, telling them that in Christ there is forgiveness. And we pray for those that have lost everything and are facing abject poverty and fear, that they too would turn from their fear and relying on their power to uh, to trust you and father as we watch brothers and sisters around the world in various difficult situations we think of our brothers and sisters in india that have suffered so tremendously during this pandemic and similarly we think of uh, of the persecuted church in places like uh, libya and north korea and we think how much they must have suffered without us knowing We ask that you uphold them. You would give them spiritual sight to see your chariots of fire that are for them and not against them. That you are for them and not against them. Father, as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper now, we ask that you will indeed use it as a sign and seal of your great love for us. Please come and minister to our souls now through this simple sign. In Jesus' name. Amen.